You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. The Jewish people in the state of Israel are going through tying times. A couple of weeks ago, Hamas attacked us in a brutal invasion, committing acts of atrocities and terror. And our national reaction is to lash back in anger, in justice, and perhaps even in vengeance. And the Torah directs us that in our lives, when we react to situations, we should stop, pause, go beyond our emotions, look at the situation, and understand how we should act. That's the first step. The second step is to turn to Torah sources, to turn to Judaism, and see what the direction is in terms of how to act. And so we turn to the Jewish ethics in war and to the sources that are going to direct us in that to try and look for answers of how we should react, of how we deal with situations of defeating an enemy, how far do we go, the taking of life, the danger of innocent lives being taken, and collateral damage, as it's called, and how we balance the taking of life with our value of peace. So the first thing to note and to start out is that peace is an overarching and primary value in Judaism. Uh, The Kaddish, many of our prayers, end with a prayer for peace. And the ideal of peace was taught by the prophet Isaiah 2,500 years ago. In Isaiah, he tells us that they should beat their swords into plowshares and nations should not lift up sword against one another. These words of Isaiah are opposite the UN on what is called the UN wall on 41st Street and 1st Avenue. And it took the world 2,200 years ago, about 150 years ago, and then after World War I, the real world realized that war is not a good thing. Before that, War was good for your country. It gave your son a noble profession to go into. It helped your economy. It helped build up national pride. And you could uh, conquer and increase your territory. But in Judaism, this was always viewed askance. And so, at least in theory, with all the problems of the UN, humanity has recognized that war is bad. At the same time, unfortunately, war is still a reality, and Isaiah's dream is what we call the messianic ideal, when the world will be enlightened. But we're not there yet. Maybe at that time, swords will be turned into plowshares, arms will be turned into feeding the hungry, and into building up countries and lands when their budget doesn't have to be wasted on defense budgets. But until then, Judaism recognizes the right to self-defense, to use violence and to kill, if need be, to defend oneself. The Babylonian Talmud, in three places, tells us that if someone comes to kill you, it says you get up early in the morning and you kill them. So it even tells us, not only do I defend myself if someone's coming to kill me, I kill them first, but I can even preemptively kill them if I know they're coming for me. 
And Maimonides in the laws of murder tells us that is true if someone's coming for me or if they're pursuing a third party. If someone's going to kill another person, even if it's a child, you have an obligation to save the other person, even if you need to kill the pursuer. Now, he does qualify it and say that if you can stop that person by injuring them, it is preferable. But if you have any doubt that you might not be successful, then you don't take that chance. You kill them first rather than injuring them. Another interesting caveat that Maimonides adds is that you cannot injure a third party in order to stop them. In other words, if they are holding a human shield in front of them, you cannot kill that human shield in order to kill them. Now, this is true in situations of personal self-defense. We're going to see that the laws of war are very different. War is a completely different set of circumstances and brings it with it a completely different set of ethical guidelines. And for that, we turn to, once again, Maimonides, his Mishneh Torah, his formulation of the laws in the Torah, the laws of Kings, chapter 5, number 1. And there he asks the question, what is considered milchemet mitzvah? There is a war which is a mitzvah, which is a divine commandment, which is an, an, a moral act, a good act. So we just saw personal self-defense can be. And here he says a similar thing. But first he says that is the war against Amalek. And secondly, he says a war fought against someone who attacks you. So if someone attacks you, a war of self-defense is a melchemet mitzvah, is a war which is a mitzvah, which is a commandment, which is a proper deed to carry out. And the Torah tells us, v'chai behem, we have a commandment to safeguard our lives, to protect our lives, and to cherish our lives. And war sometimes, unfortunately, can be that. Now, uh, the second category, which he mentioned first, was the war against Amalek. Who was Amalek? Amalek was an evil people that attacked the Jews when we left Egypt. It said they attacked from behind. It said they attacked the elderly and the children. Does this sound familiar? And Jewish people have known too much of Amalek. In the Purim story, when Haman tried to wipe out the entire Jewish people, the first record of genocide. And unfortunately, the Nazis during the Holocaust. And these people, even though Amalek was a nation, the rabbis who tell us that it's also a categorization and the, and the distinctions of Amalek are a nation that is looking to wipe out the Jewish people and a nation that is particularly cruel and brutal. And as we can see, Hamas fits both of those categories. Doesn't necessarily mean that we know that they are Malek, but it puts them in the category of dealing with evil. And we're going to see that will bring distinctions. That will qualify what we're going to say. Okay. 
Now, the first question you can ask is, are we at war? So certainly, now that Hamas has attacked us, we are at war. But there are many rabbinic, rabbinic opinions tell us that from when the combined Arab armies attacked Israel in 1947, there has been an ongoing war. Even the terrorist attacks, if they weren't an army coming from a geographical area, it's still a situation in which the laws of war apply. And we do have a concept in the Israeli army. First of all, the Israeli army is called the Israel Defense Force. We don't look to fight, but when we have to, we will protect ourselves. And they have a concept of tohar neshek, of purity of arms. In other words, an ethical code. And we'll discuss that as we go along. In Maimonides, you see a very strong demonstration of that, where he says that when one is making war, even against one's enemy, one offers a peaceful settlement. Now, that peaceful settlement requires one, them to renounce their ideology, one, and two, to not be given the chance to rearm themselves. And I would even say three, if one has given a peaceful settlement before, and they've attacked us again, then we know that their previous peaceful settlements were not peaceful settlements. They were strategies to save themselves so they could rearm and attack us again. So we need to keep those factors in mind when we think about this. Now we turn to uh, what is a very difficult topic and what is in the center of the public eye right now, which is the question of what what is called in war collateral damage or civilians who are killed in the ongoing war against an enemy army. Now, first of all, with Hamas, the line between civilians and army is very blurry. Um, They did put on uniforms when they attacked Israel on October 7th, but it seems they did that to try and impersonate Israeli soldiers. And many of them did not have uniforms on, which, by the way, is already violation of the Geneva Convention. As we know, Hamas embeds himself in civilian populations, which is also a violation of the Geneva Convention. And we'll come back to these points in a minute. The first text we're going to look at comes from the book of Samuel. And in that story, King Saul was making war on the nation of Amalek. And before the war was carried out, the valley they were attacking had Amalekites, and they also had Canaanites, another nation who actually had been good to the Jews. And before going into battle Amalek, King Saul sends words, and he tells the Kenites, leave, go out from amongst the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So we too see two things. One is that we tell the innocent civilians to leave, so that they won't be killed. But from what we see of Saul's language, if you don't leave, then 
you might be killed with them, and the attacking army has license to kill them, not on purpose, of course, but if they need to get to the enemy in the process of killing the enemy. So, and it says the Kenites left from amongst the Amalekites. Now, we know what's happening in Gaza. Uh, Israel has given word for the civilians to leave the area. And Hamas is preventing some of them from leaving. So this gets into the area of people are taken captive. We're not going to be addressing that right now. But uh, it certainly complicates the scenario. So what do we do when carrying out a war? In order to attack the enemy, you might also bring about the death of civilians. And let me present you with the scenario. The scenario is that the army comes in and there's enemy soldiers shooting from a building. And the soldiers can do one of two things. They can try and shoot back at the enemy who's able to take a good defensive position. They can try and go into the building and root them out. Both, of course, at great danger to themselves. Or do you bring in heavier artillery to hit the side of the building? However, the danger is that there might be civilians in the building. And traditionally, Israel has not done the latter. Israel's, the Tohar and Neshek, the purity of arms, has been to avoid casualties, even at times putting Israeli soldiers in danger. And this strategy is somewhat controversial. Um, generally, other armies do not do this. Uh, Israel's strategy was often, when you go in urban combat, that first they walk in, then, if need be, they shoot, and then using grenades. Generally, army strategies are in urban warfare. You throw a grenade in first, and then you go in and see who's in there. And Israel, there seems to have been a shift. By the way, the Geneva Convention uh, sets out the guidelines that one informs the civilian population they need to vacate an area. And then after that, if there are civilian casualties, it is not the responsibility of the army that is attacking the enemy. That the civilian casualties are part of war. And that's what going, we're going to see that Jewish sources say that as well. It's terrible part of war. And we de deplore the loss of any life. In the book of Genesis, after Abraham conducts a lightning strike with his commandos to free his brother-in-law, Lot, who was captive. And we know he kills and uh, takes down the enemy army. And right after that, God says to him, Abraham, do not fear. Your reward, re reward will be great. And Rashi quotes the rabbis as saying, why was Abraham afraid he was afraid because he had had to kill people. 
even though they had kidnapped his brother-in-law, even though they had invaded the area where he lived. So in Judaism, we value human life. We value every human life. Human beings are created in the image of God, and we deplore the taking of life. However, it is an unfortunate consequence of war. And so we turn to the next. And, and by the way, I have many friends whose children are serving in the army. And my outlook is similar, that I would not want the Israeli army to put my friend's son in danger for any greater purpose or in any greater circumstances, even if it means the taking of civilian life, the unfortunate taking of civilian life. So let's look at a more direct source. The story, the context of the story is the book of Genesis, the story of Jacob and the city of Shechem. They camped near the city called Shechem, whose ruler's name was Shechem. And his son, Hamor, saw the daughter of Jacob, Dina, and he went and he kidnapped her and then he raped her. And then they come to Jacob and they say he wants to marry her, but they won't release her. And will they ally themselves? Let's join together. My son will marry your daughter and everything will be fine. Or so they think. And so Jacob's two other sons, Shimon and Levi, they come up with a plan. And they tell them, yes, we'll ally with you. However, we are circumcised and you have to first circumcise yourselves. The city of Shechem circumcised themselves. And when they were weak after the operation, Shimon and Levi attacked the city, killing all the men. And the commentators all asked, were they justified in taking out the entire town? Obviously, Hamor, who raped their daughter, and even his father, who was then brokering and justifying or uh, tacitly approving what his son did, so how do we look at this? And the Maral, Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, from the 1600s in Prague, great rabbi, great rabbinic figure and scholar, he says that in his commentary that this war was a war between two nations. And he says that war involves the taking of life, especially if the enemy attacks you. And in such a case as this one, first of all, he says, you do not have to give the enemy the opportunity to surrender in the case where they have done such an atrocity. That's the first point. The second point, he says, is that even though only one of them did it, that the other individuals were part of that nation that perpetuated the evil. And in this case, they didn't react to their to their leader they didn't speak out and tacitly they were protecting him because um he was holding them dina hostage and who were his 
soldiers to protect them from the sons of Jacob taking her back, the inhabitants of the town. So here we have a situation where lives of the people from the city were taken and they were part of this political entity. And what I would say about Hamas is this, is that their leaders, their 20, reportedly 20 to 30,000 soldiers, terrorists, not soldiers, terrorists, after the atrocities we've seen they've done, they are all part of this machine of evil. And one could even see them as a Malik. Just like the SS, anyone who was part of the SS, they were evil and they were accountable for all of the killing in the Holocaust, for the murder of six million Jews. Furthermore, anyone who was part of their apparatus. In the 1980s, Kurt Waldheim was the chairman of the United Nations. And then it came out that he had been an SS officer. His defense of why he didn't tell anyone and why he hid it was that, well, I was only a bureaucrat. Which, by the way, was Eichmann's defense. I didn't actually kill anyone. And then after he left, he went to Austria. They elected him president. And at the time, I believe it was Ed Koch, the mayor of New York, refused to let him come back in to New York to go to the United Nations. Because everyone understood an SS officer, he is part of the evil. And so not only is it the 30,000 Hamas terrorists, it's the many people on their payroll. It's those who are helping their effort. And they, these terrorist organizations try to distinguish, no, we have a fighting arm and we have a civilian arm. We've seen now that that is a veiled lie. And that anyone who is part of their infrastructure is complicit in their evil. And their evil goes beyond that. If you look at the charter, the Hamas charter in 2006, it explicitly says their goal is to wipe out Israel, not only that, but to slaughter, to murder Jews. You can look it up online. It says, and it says the Jews will go run, hide behind rocks, and this is quoting the Quran, and the rocks will tell them, here is the Jews, so that you may slaughter them. In 2006, I mean, majority of the voters in Gaza voted in Hamas. And to this very day, Hamas runs youth terror camps starting at the age of five. And over 100,000 children were enrolled in these camps. The other competing camp, the UN camp, by the way, is certainly better than a terror camp, but they also preach anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews, and the destruction of Israel. So we could ask, how innocent are the innocent bystanders? The latest figures are that 50% of the population of Gaza, over 
is supportive of Hamas and what they do. So that does leave us with a situation where, yes, there are some innocent bystanders, but not all of those who are not the terrorists. It goes way beyond them. The other important thing to remember is that in this fight, if Hamas are not eliminated, they will come back and do exactly the same thing that they've done again. Now, they took out from their charter the line about murdering Jews, but the destruction of Israel is still their goal. So we follow the Geneva Convention. We tell the innocent bystanders to leave the area. And then we are allowed to conduct our war. If there is the loss of innocent civilians, it's a terrible tragedy. But the spokesman for the State Department, Matthew Miller, on the second day of the war, when he was questioned by a reporter saying, what about the babies who are dying, the Palestinian babies who are dying? He said very clearly that it's not Israel's moral accounting that must be made for that. He said Hamas not just attacked Israel, created, perpetuated terrible atrocities, knowing Israel would attack them back and knowing civilians would die. And we know this has been Hamas's strategy for many years now. And then to use that in the world media to accuse Israel of exactly the thing that they do, which is causing the death of these children and killing innocent children, which they have done. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, once again, I share with you another source that talks about the Jewish misgivings of taking life. And the story of Jacob and Esau, his brother, uh, Jacob buys the blessing from Esau, their father's blessing, birthright. And when he receives it from their father, Esau is furious. And he wants to kill him. Jacob leaves for 20 years. And when he comes back, he is going to meet his brother. And his brother comes out with over 300 of his entourage. And Jacob doesn't know what they are intending for him. And said Jacob was greatly afraid and he was distressed. Now we know that the Torah focuses upon every word. Every word has meaning, and any extra words, we look for the meaning of why a word might be, or an intent might have been repeated. So why does it say he was greatly afraid and he was distressed? Once again, Rashi, the great French commentator from the 12th century, quotes the rabbis, and it says he was greatly afraid lest he be killed, and distressed that he might have to kill someone from Esau's group. Innocent bystander. We turn to another of the later commentaries to see the final teaching about 
collateral damage, innocent bystanders. And to see, is there a parameter, is there a guideline? There's much discussion of a term used in the Geneva Convention of proportional response. And, you know, you think about the recent events and it's um, a terrible irony to think what when they when they started calling for Israel's proportional response, one voice said, what does that mean? Israel would go and murder 1,300 women and children and grandmothers, and then we'd have our proportional response. Of course, that's absurd. But we are going to see that as a Torah source that has some guidelines. So this is the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, great dean of the yeshiva of Volozhin in the mid-19th century. And his commentary, he tells us that if a person kills when they should have brotherly conduct, then, of course, they're responsible. But he says not so in a time of war. He said a time of war is, quote-unquote, a time to hate. The famous passage in uh, Ecclesiastes written by King Solomon, a time for love and a time for hate, time for peace and a time for war. And unfortunately, there is a time where we have to kill. And he says in those times, there's no culpability whatever, despite Abraham's misgivings and Jacob's distress. Because unfortunately, this is how the world was founded. And then he quotes from the Talmud, a kingdom that kills one in six is not held culpable. So it seems like he does offer a certain parameter, a certain guideline for innocent bystanders, understanding that there's going to be a certain amount killed. But of course, we try to keep that minimal. And one six in his teaching seems to be the maximum line not to be crossed. So we're going to conclude with an idea which is very important to understand. Because the Jewish people are merciful people. And yet sometimes we're told that being merciful should not be our primary feeling. Maimonides tells the soldiers in his teachings, where the soldiers are told, don't think about your family. Don't think about the loss of life, but think about your mission at hand. And the teaching from the Midrash Kohelet Rabbah 716 tells us that someone who is merciful to the cruel, if you show mercy to those who have been so cruel, in the end, you'll wind up being cruel to those who are merciful. In the end, you'll wind up being cruel to those who are merciful. And the story quote is the story of King Saul. King Saul, his son-in-law, King David, uh, was part of his court. And King David was, King Saul felt that David was a threat to his kingdom. 
And he was actually right because the prophet Samuel had removed Saul from his position, told him that his children would not inherit the kingship and had secretly anointed David. So he was pursuing David to kill him because in most older cultures, treason was liable to death penalty and many today it still is. So the story was that when Saul was making war against uh, King, was pursuing King David, King David hid in a city of priests. And they gave him food and water and sent him on his way. King Saul heard about this. He sent his general and they wiped out the city of Kohanim, killed them all for being complicit to treason against the king because they had aided David. Now, maybe on the books, he was justified. But in another incident, when he's making war against Amalek, he kills most of Amalek, wipes out their army, but the king is still alive. And he hesitates and he does not king, kill their king, Agag, and he's kept alive. And Agag, that night, even though he was a prisoner, somehow found another, a, a servant woman, had relations, sired a child, and his child would be would be the forefather of Haman. From that union would come Haman, who tried to destroy the Jewish people in the Purim story. And so the next day, came, the prophet Samuel, the man of God, comes and kills Agag and says to Saul, this is it, you, and the implicit message was, you were merciful upon those with whom you should have been cruel or you should have been uh, exacting. And we see the imbalance in his values and his ethics because he was cruel towards the Kohanim of Nob, who he could have spared, even if they did something that on the books was wrong. And so we see this being played out. Those who are merciful to the cruel, we see people demonstrating for the Palestinians and the process tacitly supporting and sometimes overtly justifying Hamas. They are merciful to the cruel. And then what do they do? They turn around and they accuse Israel of genocide and crimes against humanity. Israel, who tries to minimize the loss of innocent life, and Hamas, who created, who, who uh, perpetuated war crimes by killing women and children brutally and cruelly, perpetuating horrors. And so we see this imbalance creates a warped worldview, and we have to know that it is warped, and speak out against it and not have to justify defending ourselves and even the taking of life and our goal of destroying Hamas because they are evil and those who are complicit with them are evil. And to keep that clarity. Yasser Sinwar, who 
masterminded the massacre is not new to us. In 1988, he was arrested for kidnapping and killing two Israeli soldiers. He was put into prison for life. When he was in prison, he had a brain tumor, and Israel treated him and saved his life. Then in 2014, after the 2014, he was exchanged in a prisoner exchange for Gilad Shalit, an Israeli prisoner taken, soldier taken prisoner by Hamas. A thousand Palestinian terrorists were released, amongst them he, and he went on to do this terror. And should Israel be treating terrorists? Should we be saving their lives medically? I have my strong ethical doubts whether that is the right path to take. And we see that exhibited here. Those who are merciful to the cruel in the end, will be cruel to the merciful. In the end, it brought about the loss of 1,300 lives from those who were massacred. I was going to say Jewish lives and also non-Jewish lives. There were Thai workers. There were other laborers, agricultural laborers, homemades who were killed as well. So I'll end with this. It says in the Psalms, God gives strength to his people. God blesses his people with peace. Hashem oz le'amo itain. Hashem yivarech atamo b'shalom. And in Jewish peace and teachings, we understand that we need to be strong. And sometimes unforgiving in order to achieve peace. We do know that long-term, we're going to have to find some kind of solution where the peace-loving and Palestinians who are ready to live in peace, that we will we accept them. And that's why we've been providing energy and food for Gaza all these years, even though they had a terrorist regime leading them. And we've told Gazan people, it's not against you we have a gripe, it's against the terrorist leaders and those who help them and those who support them and those, by the way, who celebrated in the streets on October 7th. And one can't but ask how many, how much of the population of Gaza was that? The book of Proverbs tells us in Jewish ethics, do not rejoice over the downfall of your enemies. We will not be rejoicing when we take down Hamas but we'll be with resolve knowing this is what we had to do. And Golda Meir was quoted as saying, when peace comes, maybe we'll be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons. She said, but it'll be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill their sons. And while the taking of life has an ethical price, takes a toll, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to take a life, Although, I have to say that if I was in that position, and if I was younger and had to serve, I would serve. And if I knew I was taking the life to defend my family and my country, I would. But I can't imagine what it's like having to live with that, even when you know you're right. But I disagree with Golda Meir. But it won't be harder to forgive them for having forced us to kill. Because we know that when we have to do it, we do. 
And the final thing she said, that peace will come when the Arabs will love their children more than they hate us. When they love their children more than they hate us. And we do yearn for that time. And we can only hope that standing up in strength, defending ourselves, wiping out evil in the long term will bring us to peace.